0: Welcome back to the Paddlemore podcast. We're on episode eight, and this week we're chatting to Hugh Oliver. Um, Hugh's a really nice guy, um, based up in Newton, more up, up in the Highlands. Um, and Hugh would probably describe himself more as a mountain biker than a paddler, but in the last few years has got really into bike packing and um, and as a part of that has been exploring a lot of places in a pack craft um, so if you're not sure what a pack is we'll leave Hugh to describe that when we when we get into things but he's been using these pack craft to extend his adventures and take, take him to new places
1: yeah a lot of this episode kind of centers around adventure side of it rather than necessarily paddling specific so we we do get into some of the technicalities and some of that but Hugh is I think first and foremost he's an adventurer and then he's a then he's a a paddler or a mountain biker or whatever he would describe himself as Um, yeah really interesting chat with you really cool to find out about an area of paddle sports that's not kind of super well known in the UK um, and really interesting to see how we can link different adventures together uh, and use packrafts to reach places, or um, use them to get to bits of water that we wouldn't normally get to.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Let's get into it. Hey, how are you? Hello, doing? Hugh.
2: Yeah, good. Thanks. How are you guys?
0: Yeah, good.
1: Good. We were slightly worried when we saw your well, Grant saw your Instagram story from 10 minutes ago and you're out on your bike in the snow and we thought, see, you forgot. Oh uh,
2: yeah, I just got back. Um, yeah, I literally just got back.
1: Uh, it's great to have you on, despite the fact you say you're not really a paddler, you've been doing some pretty cool things in packrafts. Um, for those, I think there's a lot of people in the paddling community that have never heard of what a packraft is. Um, so could you just give us a bit of a, a bit of an introduction, then a bit of a history of, of what a craft is and, and what you do with them?
2: Uh, yeah. Hi, um, hello. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be on. Um, so I am thirty years old and currently living in Newtonmore in the Highlands. Um, I was an outdoor educator until COVID hit, and like lots of other instructors, I have no idea what I do for a job anymore. But it seems to be working from one month to the next. <laughs> um, I'm definitely a mountain biker first and foremost. I've been biking for fifteen years or so now. Um, and in the last sort of five or six, I've really got into adventure biking. Um, anywhere that's a bit kind of makes you wonder whether it will be any good or not is enough to kind of pique my interest, especially if it goes somewhere remote uh, and interesting. And along the way, um, by getting introduced to bikepacking, um, sort of multi-day bike journeys, our friend Andy Toot, that runs a shop in Abbey Moor, introduced us to packrafting kind of at the same time because they're kind of, the two go together really, really well. Um, Packrafting seems to be kind of the paddling equivalent of bikepacking, I think lightweight travel over multiple days often um, so if you've not heard of one before a pack craft is effectively a super lightweight packable inflatable kayak is the most similar sort of boat and um, they're open decked but they're paddled in the same style as a kayak most of the time um with a two-bladed paddle and they can weigh anything from kind of mm-hmm. just over a kilogram um most are between two or three kilos uh, up to Sort of five or six kilos for heavier whitewater boats there's quite a lot of variation within them um, depending on what you want to do with it some are open decks some have closed whitewater decks they can have a rigid cockpit rim um, they can store gear inside the tubes of the boat and they can inflate in five or ten minutes and roll up to fit on your bike or on top of a rucksack so they're super super versatile boats um, and the versatility definitely kind of caught our attention and we've we've used them me and my partner, Annie, have used them to do uh, multi-day journeys in Scotland um, and Greenland and hopefully more places in the future every time a map kind of catches our eye. Um, and al- along the way, I've had to start thinking of myself as a paddler every now and then, only for a little bit. And then I remember that. I'm not. Um, okay. but yeah, that, that's that craft in a nutshell. They're, they're not the best boats because they're not meant to be what they are. Instead, is a kind of creative tool, I think, is a better way of thinking of them.
0: Yeah, yeah, they're definitely a compromise of everything, aren't they, in terms of that packability versus versus adventurability.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: But I think you know you're definitely in a in a paddler. Some of the stuff that you're doing on, on white water in those packrafts is is pretty impressive for for something that blows up from a dry bag. Um, you know, some of the some of the stuff that you put on Instagram looks pretty spectacular for for an inflatable tube.
2: Well, I think a lot of people are pretty surprised by how capable they are. Um, I definitely was when I was sort of first learning about them. But the guys um, from Alpacaraft, so we're supported by Alpacaraft, um, who are kind of, they were the first manufacturer of kind of commercially available packrafts um, out in Colorado. And Thor, their CEO, paddles class four, class five in boats, as do other people. Um, they're incredibly capable boats, which I think is really cool and they've refined them further and further so that the whitewater specific boats are, are pretty good. Nice.
1: Nice. Um, how, how do they fare on kind of big open water crossings? Have you done many bigger open water stuff or is it mainly kind of navigating narrower channels to get to, to biking areas? Um...
2: Yeah, so like I say, they are, they are a compromise of almost everything um, because they're a creative tool if you just want to paddle on the sea then we've you know folks have invented a really good thing for that it's called a sea kayak and if you if you (laughs) just want to paddle along a lake then a canoe is also quite good at that a pack craft is not but what it can do is allow you to pack up and move in a different way onto the next bit of water um so they're not the fastest boats in the world on flat water and the main thing is that they're affected by wind so obviously almost all their surface area is above the waterline. Um, super affected by wind in a way that you can't always control. Um, so that's probably the biggest planning factor. I think the largest crossing we've done was uh, a fjord in Greenland. So it was about a five kilometre crossing, which was pretty serious. Um, sort of considering the speed of the boat is maybe four or five kilometres an hour. Um, and there were strong winds that would come up from time to time. So we really had to kind of pick our window. Um, and be really aware of the what-if, sort of worst-case scenarios, and a lot of what-ifs going on in our head to try and plan around that. Um, So it's not that they can't do the things, it's that they're they're an adventure tool, first and foremost, that happens to be also able to do all these different types of water, as long as you accept the limitations.
1: Um, Something I've always kind of wondered, and I don't know whether it's pertinent to the paddling of them at all, but the bikes when you you kind of do you rest the bikes on the front do you strap the bikes down because i've seen loads of pictures and i just think i can't get my head around how it actually attaches and whether or not you're just likely to lose your bike if you go down anything too kind of <laughs> too gnarly um, i'm yeah, so guessing that they've got that nailed but i've just never got my head around it
2: yeah well that's that's the best thing about them like i say It's you're not going to get very far if you just compare it to, say, a sea kayak. But a sea kayak can't roll up and fit on the front of your bike. And also a sea kayak can't have a bike strapped on the front. So that's that's when they become amazing. Um, So the bikes fit really well. It takes it depends on which boat you've got and which exact bike you've got. So you always take a couple of goes to like learn the setup for your specific bike. But um, as a general rule, we take the front wheel off, turn the handlebars 90 degrees and kind of lay the bike on the front of the boat, trying to keep the center of gravity roughly in the middle. And if you've got a packed frame bag, that kind of makes it a bit easier because you've got weight where you want it to be. And then the front wheel just gets strapped on top of that. Um, And that's the simplest way to go on. They have four tie downs generally at the front of the boat. Um, And we just use ski straps, sort of wallow straps are the best thing for it. And like the first time I ever did it, it took ages. And as soon as I thought I'd got it right, I launched the boat onto the water and it just flipped upside down (laughs) because I didn't, I didn't have it loaded. Right. Um, it definitely takes, it's a definite skill. It's a bit like packing a rucksack for an exped. The first few times you do it, it's just awful. And you end up with pots and pans, um, hanging off the side, like a DAV group. And then as you go, you refine it and you like really get to know your kit. So, um, no, you can keep the trim of the boat really good if you know what you're doing and generally takes about, 15 minutes to go from riding mode to to paddling mode if, if you're slick. You know, if it's day four of a trip and it's the fifth time you've done it, you get a lot slicker. So it's kind of a satisfying skill in itself to work out what works and how to make it work efficiently.
0: That's really cool. So obviously we'll we'll come on to hearing a proper adventure story from you in, in a wee bit. But where have you taken them? You know, obviously you said that you've taken them to Greenland and around Scotland, but yeah, where, where, what sort of environments are you, are you personally taking these into that that kind of gets you really excited for for, for the pack crafting and biking combinations?
2: Mm, um, so for bike crafting, the, the majority of the stuff we've done in Scotland has been kind of West Coast, because the West Coast of Scotland has got kind of everything you need in a way. It's got really nice bits of kind of adventurous riding that often will dead end at a sea loch or a freshwater loch um or maybe just trails that are overgrown you you know what the the sort of northwest highlands are like they're quite um they are quite adventurous lots of stuff doesn't link quite exactly where you need it to um so by by introducing a boat and being able to cross short stretches of water it's like a perfect place to to sort of get the most out of them i i don't really like um feeling like i'm forcing it because a pack craft is still even with really lightweight stuff, it's still three or four kilos to add onto your gear, which is is quite a lot. Um, so if it's a route that's kind of arbitrary and it doesn't feel like you need it, I never find it very satisfying. Not to say that people shouldn't just do it for the hell of it, because it's very fun. Um, but I definitely like to, to sort of seek out routes where the route doesn't work without the bike and the pack craft both. Um, so best example is probably Noida. We've done a few routes in Noida, um, I think three or four different routes. And that's a perfect one because you've got these amazing long sea locks, uh, Loch Nevis and Loch Horn, um, that have, you know, they're pretty sheltered from the weather. They're not too big, so you can you can keep yourself safe enough if you make good decisions. Um, and you can also get a free ride off the tide because they have pretty strong tide flows. Um, so they're lovely. The trails are really mountainous and rugged, but there are a couple of nice ones that link link through. Um, for example, you've got Loch um, a bit further inland, which was obviously flooded in the 50s, I think, to make... a uh, hydro reservoir like a lot of the west coast and there's an old road that is drowned under Loch kirk but runs down to barsdale bay it sort of rises out of the water and if you paddle across the lock from one of a couple of different places you can pick up this road where it comes out of the water ride that down to barsdale bay and then you can get on the sea lock to go one of a few different places again and that kind of route is really satisfying like it's not like it's not hard work the biking is not mellow and easy but it's very very good yeah, yeah. And that's the sort of thing that that gets me and Annie. I'm quite excited to go to go and do it. It's always a good time. Uh, and then another one we've done is uh, the Outer Hebrides was another cool trip that felt very satisfying because obviously long island chain separated by mostly short stretches of water um, and a few sort of sandy tidal islands. So we took fat bikes and pack crafts to the US a few years ago um, and did a sort of circumnavigation where we were riding down the beaches on the west coast on the fat bikes. Uh, and then using the rafts to hop between islands. Um, and that was another one that was really, cool. really good. Yeah, really satisfying.
1: Nice, island hopping on with pack rafts and with bikes sounds like a, a wicked way of linking up adventures. Um, I think that, uh, yeah, that's definitely the way that these are, are used, but I've, I've kind of seen them used in slightly different ways. Still linking up adventures, but making bits of water which aren't otherwise accessible, making them accessible. So um, I think, I guess for you, a lot of the focus is Um, making biking accessible through water but it's all part of one trip but I guess you could look at them as a reverse as well couldn't you so if you've got a lock that you really want to paddle or a stretch of flat river that you really want to paddle which you know is up a mountain over a mountain pass or kind of in the middle of nowhere you could throw the pack craft onto your bike or onto your bag and you can walk in and you can use it to access bits of water as well as to access bits of land which are otherwise massively inaccessible.
2: Yeah, that's true. There is a total flip side to it. Um, and I think in the last maybe year or so, um, I've definitely tried to push my comfort zones a little bit and try something new and, and explore that side of it a little bit more. So back in uh, October, I think, or maybe early November last year, I did a trip with Johnny Hawkins. So I'm sure you'll have come across in your travels. Um mm-hmm. and we did a, a trip. He was in a canoe yep. and I was in a pack um down the ore, um from Bridge of Orkey. Which was very low and scrapey, but we got down one way or another. Um, and then we went all the way across Loch Orr and down the river or on the second day. And then we paddled up Loch Etiv, um and then up, hikes up Glen Kinglass and then down into the top of the Orkie system the next day, um, which was amazing. Hard work on the canoe. I think we were quite glad to have only one canoe and one pack craft, um, but it was quite cool to make a multi-craft journey. Uh, but we were also, the day that we were hiking up uh, Glen Kinglass, it was tanking it down with rain. And we were definitely eyeing up the King Glass itself as a river that looks incredible to paddle, um, but if only had some sort of easily portable but still capable white water boat with which to paddle it. So I think that one got added to the list for future future expeditions. <laughs> um, yeah, so quite interesting doing that as
1: well yeah and how do the how do the rafts fare on whitewater i know we kind of we touched on it previously and we you said they're kind of robust and but in terms of kind of paddling skills i've seen some of your photos of taking it down some pretty meaty stuff on you know the tumble the finned horn um, and the orchid. does it do all right on stuff like that or is it kind of a case of really think about your lines and, and think about your technical ability before you start poking it down stuff like that
2: Ah, um, oh, it's quite an interesting one, actually, because obviously I'm not a kayaker. So when I started paddling them, um, I don't have the point of reference to compare in quite the same way. But from, from giving it to people that are kayakers um, and chatting to them a lot, it's, they're very, very stable boats because they're flat bottomed. Um, they're super, super stable. So they're super forgiving. Uh, the fabric is really, really robust. Um, you know, after scraping it down the oar for an entire day, and hitting a lot of rocks. I was really thinking like, oh, I must have damaged it this time. Um, and I'd managed to put one pinhole in a tube that was fixed with a little blob of aquaseal, and that was it. It's pretty easily field repairable. So it's super robust. Um, where they have a disadvantage is they're not as responsive. So they obviously don't have an edge. Um, so surfing them is quite exciting.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> um, <laughs> they, they surf really easily. But just without the same control as a kayak so it's quite exciting you just as long as you show your bum upstream it sort of goes okay but as soon as you don't it, it doesn't um yeah they're not as precise they're not as kind of you can't cut through the water like a like a scalpel like a you know a nice um, white water boat can um they're a bit more of a crude instrument um but we've also found obviously they're designed to be loaded up for multi-day journeys when there's weight in the boat stored inside the tubes um, so they often a lot of models will have a dry suit zip they have a heavy gauge t-zip uh, in the back so you can actually unzip the tubes store your gear in the boat before you inflate it um, and then yeah inflate it That's genius, so wind- it's really good so it means you end up with a very you can have multiple days of kit but have a super clean boat which is lovely but also the extra weight in the tubes um, makes it paddle a whole lot better because it just makes it sit a little bit lower in the water uh, you have a bit more momentum to punch through stuff so one thing I found with an unloaded boat obviously the boat only weighs three kilos so it was very um, sort of holes suddenly became very grabby and very sticky whereas with that, that bonus 10 kilos inside the boat it just punches through a lot better um, so yeah it depends whether you're doing whether you've got gear with you or not but there are there are differences to a whitewater kayak but it seems to be outside of not being quite as precise. They're, almost as capable depending on the paddler paddling it so not in my case
1: yes. <laughs> you mentioned about how much control you have i'm, I'm intrigued i've never seen inside a craft so i don't know what we're talking about. in my head it's kind of you've got the tubes around the side and then you've got a flat hole but is there kind of any form of anything in the middle is there any kind of straps is there any kind of um Any kind of seating or anything like that that gives you control or is it kind of a case of tuck yourself in and and get yourself against the sides?
2: Ah yeah so they've come a long way um from when they were invented as far as I'm aware when they were first invented they were actually um air force it was US air force equipment uh, and they were kind of emergency life rafts for pilots and then civilians started getting hold of them through military surplus and using them to cross rivers or lakes on sort of wilderness trips in Alaska. Um, and that was at like the very crudest early form of pack craft was literally just a donut with a floor. Um, yeah, just a few tubes and a floor and that was it. And if you need the lightest weight boats, still use the same design because they're just super simple. Um, yeah. But the whitewater boats nowadays are way more sophisticated. So you've got um, kind of a more refined hull shape, um, maybe with a little bit more buoyancy at the stern uh, and a bit of a rocker on the on the sort of hull shape as a whole. And then um, you'll have a foot brace and a sort of proper foam seat that can be adjusted at the back of you, uh, as well as thigh straps for your knees. So you can have that connection with the boats. So the, the cockpit is really adjustable. And you can get it cinched in pretty tight. Um, so thigh straps make a huge difference, obviously, because you can roll it. And then the nice. cockpit. yeah. So the cockpits can vary from just a super simple elastic skirt to, again, like whitewater boats have a rigid cockpit rim and a proper spray deck. Um, it really cools. You have a little sewn sleeve, and then this kind of flexible tubing that you slide through and and plugs in to the end of itself to make a rigid cockpit rim. Nice. This is like this is the alpaca system that I'm describing. Yeah, yeah. But I think that's the most sophisticated. Yeah, yeah. Other brands have kind of come on board and copied the same ideas. Um, and it, yeah. It, so you've yeah. got a boat that's dry and super connected, uh, and still escapable. So uh, yeah, makes some really fun to paddle. Yeah,
0: yeah. That's and on, on most of your trips are you using the, the sort of full-end white water spec or are you down on the the donut with the floor what what tends to be your your choice
2: um yeah so anything bike crafting the technicality of the water you're doing is obviously limited by the fact there's a bike on your boat so that almost always tends to be you know flat water or grade one is is pretty much all you're paddling so in that case just the the super crude boats the simple one with no deck, no nothing is best, because then they only weigh two kilos. Um, and it's worth any downside for, you know, getting the odd little bit of spray or whatever blown over your knees. And then anything above grade one, yeah, it's really nice to have a proper water boat. And then the weight for that goes up to just over three kilos. It's still pretty light. Um, you, know, I think three and a half. By the time yeah, still not bad, go. is it? It's not bad. It's a lot bulkier to pack up, um, but weight is pretty good.
1: Yeah. I'd love to have a boat to portage up a river that only weighed three kilos. There's def- definitely time, the amount of times I've had to carry that 20 kilo beast up the side of a river and you're just like, you know what, something that packs into a rucksack I could just walk home with would be awesome right now.
2: Yeah, well, I think like um, I've often thought that whitewater pack crafts don't really have that much of a place in the UK because obviously so many rivers are roadside. But the more I was thinking about it, given how capable a whitewater boat is, if you're good enough to be paddling something like the tilt um, or like a whole heap of others, actually, probably be really quite a good thing. The fact that accessing is super quick, super easy.
0: Yeah, I guess the really cool thing is now as well, is it gives you an all-in-one, you know, option for paddling and shuttling, I guess, as we go more environmentally conscious and the trying to minimize our our impact on the environment. I guess the the ideal thing of whitewater packrafts are we could bike the rivers, even though they are roadside. You could you could bike bike to your local river, paddle down it, and then throw your packraft back on your bike, on, on your on your back, walk up to the top, and then cycle home. Unlike with a plastic boat, where you're gonna have have a you know car and shuttles and trailers and all the rest of it, which is which is good
2: yeah totally um i think like sort of looking from the outside in i've always found that really weird about the paddling world that you have to take two cars and do all the shuttling and it takes so much time and it's i guess it is the way it has to be but it's really nice to have an option not to yeah if it's just a nice day and you want to go for a wee paddle then you can do it do it super easy whether it's walking or with a bike yeah it's a nice it's a nice kind of bonus bonus thing that it allows you to do it doesn't have to be a big multi-day trip it can just be a nice afternoon but it still keeps it simple and light.
0: Yeah. I've always yeah. been very je- jealous of folks on the Gary when I've been up at the Gary and I've seen folks wandering back up carrying their pack craft and I'm trying to the plastic boat and like mm, something. Ah, <laughs> have you seen
2: many folks who pack at the Gary?
0: Not a huge number, but the odd odd few
1: that looks like a good a good option for pack crafting. There's a, a decent amount of water coming through it. I imagine it's probably much nicer in a in a good flow than it is in a bony kind of scrape
2: yeah the gary's a really good one
1: super super nice how how long do they take to blow? how how do you inflate them actually do they do they come with kind of an inflation pouch or do they and is it like a long process because i'm thinking if you're if you're looking to do a long trip or if you're looking to do rivers and stuff how much faff is there involved
2: Mm. um takes about five minutes to inflate so they used uh, they've got a one-way raft style valve. Um, I don't know if I'm assuming you guys have seen those before. Yeah, Because yeah, uh, yeah. obviously I've only seen them on a pack raft, but I'm told that it's a raft style valve. <laughs> um, and a big Sil Nylon inflation sack. So you screw the sack onto the valve, um, and yeah, sort of catch, catch the air. And that the sack must be like 60 or 70 liters. So it only takes five or six full bags to to inflate the boat, and then you sort of top it off, sort of blowing from your lungs. So yeah. it's another skill that like is really faffy the first time and then you get a lot quicker at. Um yeah by the time you've inflated like because obviously you have to inflate the seat and the footrest separately but the whole thing must take no more than 10 minutes. Okay. It's pretty it's pretty light work. It's pretty good. That's that's
1: really good actually.
2: Yeah, it's a cool yeah. it's a cool thing about it because obviously the inflation bag only weighs 100 grams or so so it's everything is beautifully kind of simple and light but does the job.
0: And so the seats inflatable as well, so you, you don't even need to worry about having to carry bits of foam around with you to kind of make yourself comfy in, in there as well. It's all all just inflated a bit, like how your ThermoRest inflates it. For, for yeah, it's time. like a
2: very yeah. stubby, very thick ThermoRest. Yeah. yeah. Um. So the specific whitewater boats have a two-thirds length floor, um, which makes the boat a lot more rigid. Mm-hmm. And then um, other boats will have a kind of one-third length inflatable seat that's maybe like four inches thick. So 10-12 centimetres um, keeps it a lot warmer too yeah. and also quite good if you're paddling down a bony river it means you don't get any sharp things yeah. in your bum <laughs> a good bit yeah. Of yeah, yeah you've got that
0: extra padding yeah. that's always a good thing
2: yeah it's quite handy sometimes
0: yeah
1: so yeah we talked about kind of where you've taken them and and kind of your island hopping trip sounded awesome but i think one of your one of your biggest trips was kind of over in greenland wasn't it where you did quite a lot of mountain biking and then an enormous kind of trip within a trip where you were on the crafts themselves
2: so yeah that was back in 2018 um kind of ooh, what was it late july into august um and i can't remember to be honest what what sort of set us off in the first place but sort of whenever we end up doing a big trip it's always just something one of us has seen something somewhere and it's set us off on a little bit of google image searching or maybe some google earth time and it sort of gradually snowballs to the point where you're like i think this could work and then at some point you have to sort of commit to it and buy some flights and then suddenly you're on a plane to somewhere and you get there and you're like oh no now we need to we need to find out if it works or not. Um, so we ended up in Western Greenland um, thinking that we'd do um, a route called the Arctic Circle Trail, which runs from Kangaluswak, which is an ex-American air base inland quite near the ice sheet, to Sisamute, which is on the coast. Um, so Kangaluswak is quite an unusual settlement because it's not on the coast. Um, and that's you know, that's why it was built there because it was purely one of the only two places, I think, in Greenland. Where they found enough space to build a runway that could land big plains. Um, so that, that's why it's there, it's the coldest place in Greenland which is why Greenlanders didn't make a settlement there. Um, but there's a, there's good caribou and muskox hunting nearby um, and there's an old, well there's an existing sort of traditional winter route that travels inland from Cystermute towards these hunting areas that uses a lot of frozen lakes and the frozen fjord in winter. And in an attempt to kind of attract tourism, there's a, a summer version of the same route called the Arctic Circle Trail, which is Greenland's longest hiking trail. But by hiking trail, we really mean like animal track. It's, it's super remote um, and sort of super super basic. You know, there's no path building. There is just this faint trod um, through, through the sort of tundra. So really appealing, like it sounded really cool. And um, we got there and that was one, I think that was plan B. We'd already tried plan A and that didn't work. So Arctic Circle Trail was plan B and it turned out that was a bit too rough to be really worth pushing your bikes for a week. So we ended up on plan C because it's always good to have a few plans, um, getting a little bit nervous and (laughs) attempted to go and do a route that would involve paddling down the fjord um, for about 120 kilometres that would then allow us to get off and go up a side valley that is kind of in the rain shadow of this secondary subsidiary ice sheet and therefore is very dry. So it's this sort of amazing desert valley that we thought would give really good riding for the fat bikes, uh, which it did in the end. And then the plan was to follow that all the way up to its watershed, cross into another watershed, paddle across a long lake, down another side valley, and then end up back at the head of the fjord where we'd started. So just have to cross the fjord and then get back home. Um, So we took 16 days of food, out with us um sort of with a little bit of leeway in it um and yeah the so the first week was spent just paddling down the fjord
1: which was a really yeah, i was really going to cool say journey. that's 100, 120 kilometers and you said earlier you you paddle at about four to five kilometers an hour that's not going to be a quick trip up that fjord
2: yeah well five kilometers an hour is quite fast going actually with the with everything fully loaded it was more like three i think was an average so all things considered you ended up averaging about three um unless you got a good tailwind so um yeah so it's a really long fjord and we were aware that there was a german pack crafter in uh, i want to say 2014 i could be wrong just a few years prior to us had gone on a solo trip we'd headed down the fjord and he disappeared um they'd not end up finding any traces at any point so that was a bit of a sort of sobering one to have in our mind. and we reckoned there have been a number of flat water pack crafting fatalities And they've almost all been due to really high winds. Um, So folks not being, yeah, maybe trying crossings that are a bit too big or getting unlucky with weather or whatever it was. Um, So we were really aware of the winds that can come down off the ice um, sort of very, very quickly in in that area. Um, And for the first couple of days, we did have some pretty strong headwinds. And then we had to jump off the water a couple of times and i think at one point we waited out of the wind for like 36 hours at this one camp spot which was pretty frustrating um, because it was quite early on in the trip and we were kind of eating into our spare food days um and then sort of things turned around a bit so i think on the third or fourth day no it must have been the fourth day we got this hoofing tailwind that was kind of on the edge of what we were comfortable with but was giving us a really good boost down the fjord um so we stuck super super close to the shore um, you know as close as we could really and sort of went with the wind and did a, I can't remember what we did I think we did a 40 kilometer a day it was really big um so things were kind yeah. of coming and going and then the next day the sort of crux of the journey was um crossing the fjord because obviously it's, it's mm-hmm. it was five kilometers wide at it's narrowest point um so we had to cross it at some point and five kilometers was a pretty committing yeah. pretty committing paddle and we didn't have access to weather forecasts um, at that point, we we would now because we've started using a Garmin InReach, which can get you a weather forecast. But at the time, we were using uh, a Spot tracker, which failed on that trip actually. So for reasons related to that, we don't use Spot tracker anymore. Um, spot were pretty uninterested to hear about the way in which it had failed, um, which was concerning. So I think one evening we got up really early to catch the tide, um, paddled in the morning, and then had a break in the afternoon and then sort of late at night really I suppose because it was arctic summer so um the sun was setting but only just so I think at about 9 p.m the everything had gone into that kind of glassy evening calm um and we decided that was our window that we needed to go or not go um so we set off and it was definitely the most stressful flat water paddling I've ever done I think like being a couple of kilometers out in a fjord that is glassy calm for now was this weird kind of simultaneously really magical, you know, it's sort of arctic, arctic twilight, middle of a fjord, sort of no human traces visible in any direction, but also knowing that if something goes wrong you're in a super precarious position, Um, so we were sticking pretty close together and paddling pretty hard, Um, and then we made it across and it it felt like everything had sort of been for nothing, um, and we felt a bit silly, and about 10 minutes after that the wind came up pretty hard and we had to get off the water, so it was a uh, it wasn't something where we would have done anything differently but it was a good lesson to store away um if you see what I mean it was it was yeah. definitely a sobering one yeah. um yeah and so then we, we had to get off the water and um, that night uh but we were pretty pooped by that point because yeah the long daylight hours mean that you end up doing pretty long days and then the next two days, we paddled down the other side of the fjord, sort of watching these landmarks that you'd set yourself on the horizon come closer very, very gradually. Um, and sort of eventually got round to the mouth of this side valley and, and headed up the bay into the, into the area where we were going to get off and ride. But one of the last things that we discovered was, um, obviously, tide eddies are a thing, just like an eddy on a river. We hadn't realised how big a tide eddy can be if you're in a very big fjord. Um, so we were like finding ourselves going backwards and thinking no we're with the tide we've got the tide table we're definitely with the tide um but it turned out at this particular point there was an eddy about two kilometers long and so if you're going with the tide the eddy means that you're going against the tide yeah. and if you go on the opposite tide you're still going against <laughs> it. You're just always going against the tide so we had to wait for slack water and kind of hop our way around so that was an interesting one to learn um and yeah i think it was was it six or seven days i can't remember about a week until we actually got off the water so it was quite nice because we had a week's less food than when we started so the bikes were a bit lighter
0: um
2: but yeah it was a super interesting journey and not i think it was made more interesting because it wasn't in a way a wilderness journey all the way along the fjords um so the day that we'd set out was the start of caribou hunting season for the native greenlanders and um hunting areas are divided up in greenland um On a sort of inheritance basis so the folks we met and asked said that they hunt in an area because their father hunted in that area and so on and so forth so everyone sets out in their wee boats um, and they go and set up camps along the fjord from which they can go and access the hills Uh, and the camps were pretty big you'd have maybe 20-30 families all camping in the same area like sort of almost like little villages and so every day we'd pass one or two and have a wee wave from folks um, that were kind of doing their thing and seeing boats on the fjord I think they were quite similar to us, kind of quite happy to say hi, but we're, we're quite shy, really. Um, yeah. and I think Greenlanders were the same, sort of, it's, yeah, more more can be said with a kind of a nod and a wave than needing to have a big conversation. But it was, yeah. it was really nice to, to have the contact with folks and, and see that we weren't the only people out there and, and see people doing their thing in a way that's very, very different to what would be considered normal here, but is super, super normal there. Is every summer you go and hunt caribou. So it's nice, like, yeah, it was a nice extra thing to see.
1: Yeah, it's it's not what you necessarily think of when you think of kind of a, a trip up a Greenland fjord. You don't necessarily think that you're going to come across loads of little pockets of people as you go. You almost think you're going to be just you and the water kind of alone and, and not really see anyone and have this proper wilderness trip. So did you know you were going to be seeing people along the way? Or was that kind of a, a surprise as you went?
2: No, it was a surprise. I, it was one of those things... That we hadn't researched because um, we didn't felt like we needed, we didn't feel like we needed to. We knew that there were no restrictions on where we could go due to hunting or anything like that. Yeah. Um, but little details like that are really nice when you just come across them when you're there. And it definitely, yeah, we weren't expecting to see so many people. So, uh, sometimes we could see dozens and dozens of people at the same time. But I think it kind of added to it. It was, yeah, it still felt very special to be in a place where the land is very wild and very, very big but was also being used in a traditional way that that definitely added to it for us. And then sort of adding on top of that, the desert Valley that we rode up is a muskox breeding ground. So that's protected from hunting. There's no hunting allowed in that area, but in the past, obviously people have hunted there. So all the while that we were riding up that Valley, we'd come across little bone mittens or tent circles that could have been a few hundred years old or potentially even older than that. Um, showing kind of past human activity in hunting camps which again really didn't make it feel less wild it really added to yeah. it. it was really really interesting to sit and have your lunch next to a bone a bone midden kind of poking out of the ground and think that someone else has sat and had their lunch there before a long time before you watching caribou the same way that you're doing at the same time you know, it's, it was really yeah it was quite a deep experience to be there yeah that's
1: really really cool um, yeah it's that sounds like a proper gnarly trip actually up the field it's kind of one of those that that would be a that would be a tough paddle in a sea kayak you know that would still be quite a committing journey to take on so to take that on in a you know saying yourself you're not a paddle and taking that on in a in an inflatable kayak where it could all go wrong and you've got a bike balanced on the front and all your stuff for, for 16 days in the back that's that's a pretty cool undertaking um and I guess it's it's that real commitment to having these adventures and getting yourself to these places that you're not going to get to in any other way that that kind of makes it all worthwhile and worth that, I guess, that risk that you're taking.
2: Um, yeah, I suppose the risk, it felt more like the risk was that it wouldn't be any fun rather than being dangerous in a way that was unacceptable. I think me and Annie, when we're instructing, we're both quite conservative instructors. Like we're really risk averse. Um and I think we spend a lot of time running through the what ifs in our heads, um, whether at work or if it's a personal adventure. I think, um, I think you can do a gnarly thing without it necessarily having to be dangerous, or you can go and do a super simple thing, like just going up the hill um, out the back of the house here in Newtonmore. And if you don't do your what ifs and don't have answers to those what ifs, you can make that super dangerous. Um, so I think... think there's a yeah i think there's a difference the only bit where we felt like we didn't have that much control was the fjord crossing um and i suppose that falls into that gray area that anyone doing outdoor adventures will recognize where you know sometimes you have to do as much as you can and decide if you're happy with the way things are panning out and then go or not go and then you know at that point you've done what you can and it's on you um but we were yeah we were pretty happy it was stressful but it all it all went well, if that makes sense. I don't think we would necessarily do anything differently. Um, yeah, you can minimise it, but you can't eliminate the risks. Yeah. But I think the majority of it, if you do your if you do your planning and you've got answers to the what ifs, a lot of it is just putting up with a bit of discomfort, having decided that there's an end goal in sight and that'll be worth it. Which you know, for us, was riding riding up the valley um, that we eventually got to rather than kind of great suffering it's just a bit of like well are you willing to work hard the answer is generally yes if it's
1: worth it yeah no definitely um that's really cool i'm quite keen to go out to greenland and do some do some stuff around there um, i would never really thought of it as a mountain biking destination because everything inland almost feels a bit inhospitable um, i'd kind of always thought of it as a as a really cool place to go and paddle and go and paddle around the shoreline and stuff but think Iceland you kind of think of all the stuff inside and in Greenland I kind of all think of all the stuff around the outside. I think you're right. It's quite yeah. cool to hear about kind of joint adventures in there.
2: Well I think the mountain biking is pretty limited we might have found it um <laughs> I'm sure there's I'm sure there's other places that something similar would work but for the size of the island there can't be many um I think there are some dry areas of the coastline in the far north um we kind of end up with gravel i'm sure it would work but yeah definitely further south the tundra was too rough and that that desert valley was definitely our key in to sort of making the loop so i think it was quite unique i'm sure someone that knows greenland better would would be able to point out something similar but i think there's not a lot going um with the exception of winter so we went back this winter just gone without pack rafts, um to ride the winter route that i mentioned the arctic circle trail um, so obviously in winter that's a relatively well-travelled route on snowmobiles and by dog teams. Um, so we rode that route to finally get that done, and it was really cool riding down the fjord. So the first few miles of the route goes down the frozen fjord that we were paddling on, like 18 months beforehand. Um, so riding down the same fjord was a really cool feeling. Before then, kind of heading inland, and it generally follows lakes and kind of ge- geographical handrails to get you out to the coast. It's actually pretty easy to travel. It was really good.
0: Sounds awesome. Sounds really cool to be able to go full circle on a on an adventure and go, go both summer and winter and see the see the difference. That sounds, sounds like an awesome. Yeah, that was trip. Nice.
2: Yeah. yeah.
1: So obviously you've kind of come to paddling from a from a multi adventure point of view and you you've kind of used it to to get yourself around to places but what was it in particular and you kind of touched on it what was it in particular that you were inspired to actually start taking up paddling i think it was well it was a
2: very open thing it was the idea that suddenly i suppose like you were saying earlier you can look at pack crafts as a way to link up things on land or you can look at it as a way to open up different journeys on water and definitely the starting point for me was linking journeys on land so it was places where the trail gets down to the water and runs out and, oh, but what if you could transform and cross the water and carry on on the other side? And that, that was the opener for me. But then doing that found that the sort of kind of limitless feeling of being on water and not having to follow a trail was kind of appealing in its own right. So that, that sort of started a different train of thought. Um, and it's also it's another way to experience places. So you, maybe you've ridden around the shore of a loch before. It's Very, very different to paddling across the loch. You just see things in a subtly different way. Um, and I really like appreciating landscapes from just slightly different viewpoints it's always different every time so it was just another different one to enjoy
1: yeah I definitely got that when I started so I paddled for years in Scotland and I thought oh, just I'll start doing some mountains I'll start doing that thinking I'll do my ml and actually just that thing of being up on top of a, a ridgeline and I, I think I got it first on kind of Buchal more Moor and that ridgeline along the Etive. and you look mm. down and you think I've paddled that, and it's really cool to see that from this high up. Whereas normally I'm down there looking up at this.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's like another layer to add on to your understanding of the place. I think.
0: Cool. So uh, a kit-related question, thank you. So, and 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 don't feel that you need to say your pack craft, but what's your favorite bit of kit that you take paddling with you, um, and why?
2: Oh, definitely dry suit. Yeah. I've, d- I've only discovered the world of dry suits recently. They're so good. <laughs> um, so it, well, it's a funny one because often if we're bike crafting, weight becomes crucial. Like mm-hmm. weight weight and bulk of gear is really crucial. And also when you're bike crafting most of the time, the water section is not too committing. You know sure. you're doing yes. short hops um, and you've maybe got time to to wait for the rain to pass or whatever. So generally just do it in waterproof jacket and waterproof trousers and the worst case what if is oh what if I swim and it's like well you'll be pretty wet for 10 minutes and then you'll get out yeah. and you'll deal with it so it's it's kind of okay and then um, paddling rivers this autumn um, Andy Toot in fact the guy that has the shop um, in Aviemore Moor that imports alpaca raft and introduced us to packrafting part of one arm of his global domination plan is a consignment store which is really really cool <laughs> so he takes in People can donate secondhand gear or donate their own used gear to the shop. Um, he sells it on their behalf. Uh, and then if it sells, the shop takes a cut. But most of it goes to the original owner. So it's kind of win-win. Some people get to sell their gear nice and easily because the shop does all the hard work. Some yeah. other folks get to um, you know, get really nice quality used gear that they've actually been able to see beforehand. You know, it's much more personal than doing it on Facebook. And the yeah. shop is able to run and keep on selling, you know, the alpaca rafts and Revelate kit. Uh, and he had a Kokotat dry suit. So I got a Kokotat dry suit out of there um, that's quite old, but perfectly serviceable. And it is amazing. It's so good. Um, it's been my best find in that shop and I've found some pretty good stuff in that shop. Yeah. So, yeah, if anyone's passing through Avimo, they should go give it a visit when shops are allowed to be a thing again. Because yeah. There's some some absolute gold nuggets in there. So yeah, dry suit. Every time I put it on, I'm like, oh yes, this is going to be so good.
0: <laughs> Absolutely love it. Yeah, they are just so That's much
1: good. Better That's two weeks in a row that dry suits come out on top. Yeah, <laughs> funny that. <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So in the world of packrafting and paddling, um, I'm sure you've had a few. But what is your most kind of memorable, embarrassing moment on the water?
2: Oh. Um, I know. Um, So on on that same Greenland trip, we did the biking section and sort of spent 10 days or so riding over the tundra and stuff like that. And then eventually we had to do just a single day paddling back up and across the head of the fjord. And it was super late at night. I think it was at half past 10 or 11 when we got off the water because it obviously stays light really late and we were pretty knackered. We needed one last camp spot before we got back the next morning. And um we've been paddling for a while and it was getting darker and darker. And eventually Annie was like, no, I'm calling it. We just need to get off. Like, let's just scramble up these rocks and, and get off. And the rocks were a kind of really steeply shelving, but quite uniform layer of rock, um, leading up to some sort of grassy flat spots way above. And the tide was sort of midway in. Um, so it had you know half the, half a tide's worth of kind of slippery, slippery rock. Um sort of still exposed and I managed to help Annie up and off that and onto the dry rock. And then just as I was getting up, um getting up and getting my own gear off the water, because obviously you've got a whole heavy pack craft up as well. Um just felt like my feet starting to creep and creep and you sort of know it's going to happen and there's nothing you can do. <laughs> and sort of slid slowly down back into the fjord, which is really bloody cold. because um, <laughs> it's full of glacial meltwater. So that was like quite an embarrassing way to end end the paddling section of the trip. But at least only Annie was there to see it. So I had to do a bit of getting changed and have a hot chocolate to try and warm back up. But yeah, em- luckily embarrassing rather than anything worse than that. But I don't think I've done anything too bad apart from that. Um, <laughs> Not forgotten my paddle or anything like that.
0: That's always good. That that's the norm, although we did have a, a horrific one from, from Will the other week with, with a dry suit. I'm going to use the term malfunction, but you know. <laughs> Not sure that it would do it justice for you, would it?
2: Well, it might just be because I haven't done enough paddling to have done anything that embarrassing yet. I'm sure I will given time.
0: Um, Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you will. It's only a matter of time. Just be careful with that dry suit hood. That's all I'm gonna. gonna (laughs) (laughs) Oh no! (laughs) Yeah. (laughs)
2: Ah, oh, um, similar story with a jacket hood.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that that's what, what <laughs> happened to, to poor Will when he was out in Patagonia. He was caught short and discovered he had gone into his dry suit hood when he'd been on oh, no. his Yes, yeah. not not ideal, but quite funny for everyone else. Not agree, good it. story. What's your least favorite thing about paddling?
2: Ah, least favorite thing. Um, I'm not a fan of getting wet which is not a good, not a good thing for someone that wants to do any paddling. Um, yeah, I think, I, th- I suppose I'm quite small and quite skinny, so I really feel the cold. And I hate that feeling of being stuck in a boat when obviously there's nowhere to go. You're in a boat and you're, you're maybe paddling on flat water, especially where you're not as uh, kind of active apart from your arms and shoulders and just gradually getting colder and colder and colder because um, I find it really hard to warm back up. So it's something that I will go out of my way to avoid. Um, for as long as possible yeah it's, it's the thing that I'm scared of is getting cold because I know how hard it is to come back you know the kind of miserable cold hands and you know at some point you've got to warm them back up and then it's going to be worse yeah but luckily it doesn't happen too often
1: just got to pick warm places to go paddling that's the answer
2: well that's it yeah you um, need to go to Cuba yeah
1: on the subject of picking places um, the last question what would be your I guess this would probably link in with another trip. What would be your bucket list packrafting adventure, um, and who would you take with you?
2: Ooh. Um, well, the who is easy. I think me and Annie have worked pretty well as a team so far, and that's that's probably the way it's going to stay. I think it's a bit of a deal breaker. Neither of us is allowed to go on a cool trip without the other. Um, so as long as it's <laughs> as long as it's mutual, it works. Um, but we did we did have a trip planned to Lapland this summer just gone that obviously got canned and which may well get canned this summer as well um but i think i think it feeds back into the cool thing about packrafts is there's unlikely to be somewhere that's really well known that you're going to go because they they kind of invite you to go and explore places that aren't well known or to link to well-known things um so you're always kind of yeah looking for that element of oh but i reckon that could work um so this was going to be a trip using the bikes again um crossing a couple of the sort of plateaus up in northern Norway and then linking a couple of rivers in between uh, and then eventually heading into northern Finland that we'd done a lot of google earthing on um, and found some pretty pretty solid information to suggest it was going to be pretty nice Um, so we do have a knack for going places that have the ability to be quite cold even in summer but we're really excited (laughs) about that route Um, and yeah hopefully we'll manage to get there one day that said though I would love to do a pack crafting trip in Alaska given that it's the home the home of fat crafting um especially in sort of the brooks range area of alaska there, there are a few well there's a lifetime's worth of really amazing trips um sort of like super clear crystal water nice bouncy grade two for two weeks at a time sounds very appealing
0: yeah sounds absolutely awesome mm. despite the fact that you're a man that says yeah. that you don't want to go co- get cold you've listed two of the coldest places on the planet worth but <laughs> you know <laughs>
1: And I'm really interested in the kind of in the linking trips and the, the linked adventures because you see all these people um and it's like these people that have done like all the munros in Scotland and they paddle between them or they walk between them or they mm. cycle between them and you think actually a pack craft in that kind of thing if you're going to be truly self sufficient and take all your stuff with you would just be awesome wouldn't it um and big adventures yeah. like that where you kind of up and over different lakes different fjords different rivers um i think it gives you scope to turn what could be like a few weeks into this just massive massive adventure
2: um, yeah if you ever want some inspiration on that front look up uh roman dials blog um so roman spelt like romans and dial spelt as in dial someone's phone number um and his he's so he's from alaska um, and he's got some incredible trips on his blog that really get you thinking about what you can do sort of linking different watersheds very very cool and another one is luke luke mail is another um another Alaskan who does a lot of very, very cool things in a very low key way. His blog is also worth a look. If you ever want to see where that train of thought can take you.
0: That's really cool. Yeah, you sold some other people's blogs and stuff there. Um yeah you
2: should have arranged a commission.
0: Yeah, yeah, you should have done. Um but, but how can people hear it and see about your your cool trips and adventures where 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 can people
2: find you? Oh, yeah. Um, so I do have a blog that's called topofests.com. Um, and I use the same handle on Instagram. Um, and Annie is a girl outside. Um, yeah, every now and then I do actually get around to putting stuff on there. You've reminded me that I need to, there's a few things I need to put on there, actually. Yeah, it's, it's quite a nice place to have, have some sort of stories and photos in one spot. And then from time to time, I end up writing stuff for magazines whenever I can convince them to let me.
1: Awesome thank you very much that was really cool actually that was really interesting to talk about a totally different a totally different type of paddle sport that i think doesn't get certainly within the paddling community doesn't get a lot of air and i think it's focused on a lot in the bike packing community in a few small pockets but i think in paddling it's not really come to light
2: mm, yeah possibly i think it's maybe different in other countries but it's definitely pretty small um in in the uk i should probably mention um backcountry actually in Aviemore at this point so there are a couple of folks, there are a couple of different shops selling crafts in the UK. Um, but like I said, it's Andy Toopin, Abby Moore is the guy that got us introduced to it. And his shop uh, is called Backcountry Scott. And he's been running courses for a few years now. Um, so this year we're running bikepacking, crafting, pack and bike grafting courses. We've decided to, decided to try and offer that kind of adventure and show people how it works. Um, as well as Andy's teamed up with a really well-known paddle sports instructor called Matt Haydock from Fort William. Um, And he's running a couple of whitewater skills sessions as well in the pack craft because he's given it a go and found that they're actually quite good. So he's quite keen. He's quite keen on showing other folks how they can kind of, um, or rather he's bringing that kind of paddle sports proper uh, coaching approach to to the pack crafting world, which I think will only be a good thing for it because obviously there's a really well-established pathway through developing your skills from the paddle sports world. And, I think quite a few folks get into pack crafting and just sort of do it on an ad hoc basis, um, and having a way to kind of feed in safety um, and planning elements into it, I think, will help a lot of folks. So Matt's running some of those courses for, for backcountry this year, which will be great.
0: Yeah, that'd be
1: really cool. That... Yeah, definitely yeah. cool area yeah.
0: within paddle sports.
1: Yes. Mm. Yeah, for sure. awesome well thank you very much for coming on um yeah it's been really cool really interesting to hear about your trips and we'll put some links in the show notes to make sure everybody comes and finds you and and knows what they're looking for um yeah really cool to talk to you um hopefully we'll be able to catch up soon on the river we can all go and we can all go and meet up and bounce down the river on different things and, and in different things and see how we all get on
2: uh one day one day Feels like it's a long way off just now, but I'm sure it won't be too long.
0: Yeah, it was awesome chatting to
2: you, I uh, know no, thanks very much. Yeah, nice yeah. chatting to you.
0: Yeah, thanks a lot for coming on and we'll catch up soon.
2: Catch you soon. Cheers. Enjoy enjoy the snow if it sticks around.
0: I'm sure Hopefully. We'll... You too.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I know I will. Nice. Cheers. All right. Yeah. Have a good afternoon.
0: Right. Cheers, buddy. You too. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye.
1: Bye. Hopefully, you enjoyed listening to Hugh's chats uh, all about his pack crafting stuff. Um, he's got some really cool trips uh, and he's always out doing, doing wicked adventures, usually on a bike, but often kind of linking it together with pack crafting. Um, so, if, like Hugh said, if you find him, he's at Topo Fests, um, which is his kind of handle for his blog. He's also Topo Fests on Instagram and on Facebook. And then Annie, his partner, who he does most of his adventures with, is a girl outside. Um, We'll put all of these in the show notes. As Hugh also mentioned, there's Backcountry Scott, um, which is a a shop up in Aviemore, and that's who provided Hugh with all of his pack crafts. And who kind of, if you need, if you want to get into pack crafting, then that's a really good place to start.
0: Absolutely, really cool episode this week, wasn't it? Um, Yeah, thanks a lot for listening. Um, If you still aren't sure where to find us, we're at Dean Paddlemore uh, across all the social media. You can find us on YouTube with all our little instructional videos. Fortunately, we don't have any packrafting ones, but I'm sure we can change that if someone wants to give us some packrafts. Um, so, yeah, just search Paddlemore on YouTube. Um, and if you want to support the, the podcast in any way, um, don't forget to head on over to patreon.com forward slash Paddlemore. And if there is any spare change that you might have kicking around down the back of the sofa to help us, improve the podcast and just carry on bringing it to you guys thanks a lot for listening
1: we are cheaper than a snow leopard thanks for listening we'll see you next week
0: bye Bye.